All right, we come back to Hebrews to chapter 8. And as we do, you'll notice the front of your bulletin just has simply the main point. And there's a reason for that, because our author says he's getting to that main point. So as we start here in the 8th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, we enter a chapter that, having seen, if you will, the scope and complexity of the entire letter, we've been looking at this for a little over a year. We started, I think, the week after Easter last year, and we've made it our way to the 8th chapter. But a lot's been given to us in that time, and I hope as we've been trying to carefully walk through it, we're not losing the forest for the trees. We're seeing how all this is working together because our author is going to ask ask us today to see how it all works together. And so what have we been looking at? Well, a bit of review here, but a letter about the greatness and glory of Christ, the first chapter largely about that, the greatness of Christ, his supremacy and greatness over the angels who were mediators partially of the old covenant. Likewise, he is superior in every way to every Old Testament shadow that was given in the Old Testament scriptures, greater because they pointed to him. They are shadows fulfilled in him. He is the substance for which they were the shadow. So what does that mean? He's greater than all the the people that we've looked at. He's greater than Moses, right? Moses was a great man. The, The author of Hebrews labored to make this point. We are not questioning that Moses wasn't great. He was an honorable and great servant of God, but he was only a servant. Jesus is the son in the household that Moses was chief steward in. And so he's of greater honor and dignity. He's greater than Levi. In fact, he's not just a greater priest than Levi. He's from an entirely different order, which itself is greater than the order of Levi. We've looked at all those things. He's greater than Joshua. Because Joshua ultimately could not successfully lead the people into an eternal land of promise. But Jesus does. Our chief king priest does. And so again, we need to recognize all these things that are pointing to him. And the scriptures say he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this means that this priesthood supersedes that of the Old Testament. It's greater than Levi's priesthood. It supersedes Levi's priesthood. And if we were to carefully have read the Old Testament, we would have seen that all along. Because the author reminds us, did not Abraham, as the federal head of the covenant that was made with God, did he not tithe to Melchizedek? And so in doing so, all those in that covenant, below him, his descendants, also and likewise did the same. So Levi tithed, if you will, to Melchizedek and received a blessing recognizing the greater state of the priesthood of Melchizedek. So all of this is told to us, but there's even more evidence. Because this author has said to us, if the Levitical priesthood was sufficient, if it was enough, if it was all that God ever had planned then why, when speaking of the Messiah who would come one day, did God say he would be of a different priesthood? Why not just be a Levitical priest? Why not just be of the tribe of Levi and another Levitical priest, just the greatest one yet? But it wasn't sufficient. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood was not sufficient. It was given for a purpose and for a time, but it was not, if you will, the sufficient ministry, the sufficient priesthood that God had always planned, that was this Melchizedekian priesthood. And so if we're just carefully reading, we would realize there must be a greater priesthood out there. And the author is saying, yes, there is. It's the priesthood that Christ 
embodies, the priesthood of Melchizedek, a priesthood which avails. The author said in the last chapter that the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant priesthood perfected nothing. It couldn't perfect anything because it wasn't purposed for that. But this priesthood and this covenant does perfect things. It does. It is effectual. And so again, all of this is working together to say that if we'd been carefully reading our Old Testament scriptures, we would have recognized that there must be another priesthood coming. And Jeremiah tells us in the 31st chapter, there's another covenant coming. And this author has said, well, there's an issue, isn't there? Because if there's a change in priesthood, that is necessarily tied to a change in law or covenant. And so we had to recognize how these things work together. The author is trying to urge us to think about these things. Now, he's specifically speaking to Jews who have declared that they are Christians. These are people who are well familiar with these scriptures, who have read them. He's saying, think for a moment about what you've read and know. Because all this works together to say that there must be another covenant, there must be another priesthood, and they supersede the old covenant. This is a covenant of grace in a perfect mediator, and therefore you cannot go back. So we have a priest of a different tribe, a different order, appointed by God, serving faithfully, offering a better hope, and saving his people to the uttermost. That's more or less a summary of chapter 7, isn't it? That's what we just looked at at some point. And all that's important to us because our author begins this chapter by asking us to think about what is the main point of all that he's been arguing. So we're going to come to that in just a moment. But I want to say this. This eighth chapter is an incredibly important chapter, an incredibly important chapter just in biblical theology, but in Baptist history and theology, it's an incredibly important chapter. And over the course of this chapter, we'll see why. So I pray that you'll be here and be eager to to learn why this chapter is so important to us. So as we begin, let's read the text again. uh, It's found in chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. We're going to be looking actually at verses 1 and 2, but I want us to get the flow for this opening. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said... See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now a lot of that is really a recap of what we've been looking at, isn't it? But our author says something very important, so we want to look at it under these two points today quickly. First of all, an important moment in the text And second of all, a glorious position that is said of our Lord. So beginning first with this important moment in the text, as we come to this new chapter, we immediately are greeted with this astounding statement that our author, who has gone on now for seven chapters of at times uh, in-depth theology, thinking about things that maybe we had not thought about and and backtracking through 
a few times digressions where he wanted to say, listen, there are some warnings here for the people of God that they need to consider. But he now comes to start this chapter by saying, now I want us to focus on the main point. Now, it's important for us to realize because that word, kafaleon, means the head point. And this is important to recognize because some people uh, ask, well, what does this mean? Is this the, the chief or main point of the previous chapter or the last few chapters? No, this word means the, the chief or cardinal point, the head point of all that's been said. What is this chief point, this chief word that we're trying to get to? What is it? Now, if you think about it for a moment, this is a good opportunity for us. Because as we review this, as we look at what this author says is what he's been saying, we can judge whether or not we've been on the right track. Right? Because if he says, here's the main point of what I've been saying, and it's something different than we've been saying for the last year, we know we've been on the wrong track. So it's important when you come to moments like this to say, what does the author say, and, and what have we been saying? So what have we been saying over the past seven chapters that this letter is about? Well, think about it for a moment, because there are several things that we've been arguing along the way. We started in chapter one, as we said a moment ago, with the greatness of Christ. There's no question but that this letter begins there, talking about the supremacy of Christ, his unique standing, right, as both God and man. Fully divine, entered into this world, took on, uh, took on flesh, tabernacled among us, if you will, went to Calvary's cross, gave his life. It says he himself, right, went and paid the price on Calvary's cross. Chapter 1 argues that he did it in his own body. And then what does it say? that he is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high, enthroned there, glorified there. He's received a greater name than the angels, a greater position than the angels, made greater. We talked about all the difficulty in that wording and what it's pointing to, but the idea is this messianic figure, this messianic king, the, the, the one that we've been waiting on, he has come and he has fulfilled this mission and in doing so he's enthroned at the right hand of God as mediator, as high priest, as king. And in doing that, he has ascended to a place of greatness. Right? Yes, lowered for a time. You may remember our author going through the Psalms to make this point. Lowered for a time, but again elevated and crowned in glory and honor. And so what's the chief point here that we're trying to look at? First of all, we're talking about Christ. We're talking about this unique figure in all of history that all of history has pointed to, either before it leading to him, after it pointing back to what he's accomplished. He is the focal point of everything. And scripturally, clearly the focal point of everything. And so we start with the exceeding greatness of Christ. And then we spoke, as we did a moment ago, about how he is greater than the covenantal mediators the angels, and Moses. And what was the author trying to get to in that? We talked about it at length in chapter 1. He was trying to say that if the mediator is greater of this covenant, what does it mean? It means this covenant is greater. The covenant is necessarily greater because the mediator is greater. But not just the mediator is greater, the mediation is greater. Why? It doesn't need to be doubly mediated. There's no need for angels on the heavenly side and Moses on the human side. There is one mediator, Christ Jesus, fully God and fully man, perfectly able to mediate on behalf of God and man, perfect for this role. In fact, it's God's perfect plan from before the world even was created. 
This is the one who would come and fulfill this task. So that means he's greater than Moses. We talked about that a moment ago. All the great things that Moses did were but shadows of what Christ would do in greater fashion. Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. It's great. It's important. But it's just a foretaste of what Christ does in leading his people out of slavery to sin and death. He is a prophet, if you will. He is a a leader. He is all these things that we see, and yet Christ is greater in every way. Christ is greater than Joshua. We talked about that a minute ago. Joshua brought his people into a promised land that they could never fully obtain. Christ doesn't fail. Christ leads his people into a promised land that they will reside in forevermore. What about Aaron? The entire point of the seventh chapter was to compare the exceeding greatness of Christ as priest to the weakness of Levi as priest, right? That's the entire point. There was weakness in uh, the Old Testament uh, priesthood, if you will. In fact, it, it makes that point. It says in verse 28 of the previous chapter, which we looked at two weeks ago in our last service, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. They're human beings. They are sinners. They have to sacrifice for their own sins before they can go in and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Christ doesn't have to do that, does he? There's no sacrifice he has to offer for his own sin, for he is spotless, he is perfect, he is sinless. He is the perfect sacrifice and perfect high priest. So again, uh, we see this, that his priesthood is greater. He is greater than Aaron. Aaron in no way can can be compared to Christ except in that way of being but a shadow of the full substance of Christ. And that's what this entire letter has been about. Shadow and substance, the fullness and greatness, the exceeding greatness of Christ. So we see all these covenantal mediators, all these important figures, they point to Jesus. They point to what He was coming to do. And then we, in recognizing that, uh, we spent over this last several months, I guess it has been, on this priesthood and recognizing why it's so essential to us. It's not just a better priesthood. It's an effectual priesthood. What Aaron did year after year and all the Levitical priests after him did year after year, they had to do year after year because it was never complete, right? But what Christ did once and for all was perfectly completed. And so again, that's important to us. We're going to see that as we move forward on why this new covenant is essential, why it's unique in comparison to the old covenant. Yes, the old covenant pointed to it, but it is unique. It is a greater covenant. It cannot be compared except that the old covenant is like a shadow that points to the fullness of what we are given in Christ. So all that is important for us to think about, but what does it add up to? What's the main point when you look at all that? What has this past year been telling us? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that it's a letter challenging Jews to see these things, isn't it? To see that, that if you understand that the Old Testament was pointing forward to what we're talking about here, how can you go back? How can you go back to shadow when the substance has arrived? How can you go back to Yom Kippur when Christ fulfilled it all in His perfect oblation? How can you go back to Levitical priests when you have an availing high priest, to do so, this author has been telling us, would be to show you never understood this and were never a part of it. Right? That's what we talked about. You don't lose your salvation. It's evidence that you were never a part of this. 
You were never a part of the people of God if you didn't fully grasp this, if you think you can leave this and go back to what you had before and that it's enough. And so all this is reminding us that it's this ministry of Christ that is sufficient. The Old Testament priesthood is not sufficient. It does not avail perfectly. We needed what Christ offers. What we need can be offered only in Christ. It's the effectual ministry that all of Scripture, Scripture has been pointing to. And so when we look at the blessings of the Old Testament, and they are there, we need to recognize they can't be separated from what's been promised in Christ. In fact, as we understand this more and more, I think the author of Hebrews is going to be pointing to us that as we understand it more and more, we're going to realize how everything in the Old Testament was really pointing us to Christ. He is the end of the law, right? The Old Testament was taking us by the hand and leading us to Jesus. And so all this is important. So in the Old Testament, we have mediators, we have prophets, we have priests, we have kings. Christ is the perfect mediator, perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. And so we should never let our eyes become fixed upon those things in the Old Testament, but look to the fullness of what they're actually pointing to. The end was not the Sinai covenant. The Old Testament itself teaches us this. Again, what's the point of Jeremiah? There is a covenant coming, not written on tablets of stone, but written on the heart. Right? God will write His law on our heart. It's what Paul exposits in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? Not on tablets of stone, but on sarks, flesh, heart. That's where He has written it in this new covenant. This new covenant which avails, avails. Not exterior, weak tablets which give us the commands but no ability to live them out. Now we have been given a new relationship with Christ in this covenant made effectual through Christ, given the Holy Spirit, the law is written on our hearts, and now we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, to help us. And all this is the very thing that we were waiting upon. So our need of mediation is not fulfilled in Levi or his descendants. It's fulfilled in Christ. David is not ultimately the great king, is he? There's one who comes after David who is greater than David, a descendant of David. He is the perfect king. And of course, the book began by making the point that Christ is the greatest prophet. For in times past, God sent many messengers at diverse times to our fathers, but finally to us, He has sent Christ. He has sent Christ, the perfect prophet. All this is pointing to an important point. God has given us what we need in Christ. He has given us everything we need. He has given us a sacrifice that we needed. He has given us a high priest that we needed. He has given us a covenant that we needed. He has offered us grace, effectual grace. And so we need to recognize all those things pointed to that. And if you recognize that, then you will understand that you cannot stop at the Old Testament. You cannot stop at Levi. You cannot stop at Sinai. You must, you are compelled by the Scriptures to move forward to the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Now that's what we've been arguing for a year, right? Yes, some digressions for wilderness examples to don't get stuck in the wilderness and die outside the promise and uh, you should be teaching by now and all those things we've seen along the way, but largely the message is Christ, superior in every way to everything before. It all pointed to Him. You need Him, the covenant that is Uh, guaranteed in Him and that He ministers on behalf of, that He Himself was the sacrifice for. Now, let's see what our author says is the main point. Let's just kind of compare. 
Now this is the main point of the, of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now I want you to think about a couple of points here really quick, because one of the things that we're going to be looking at next week is that even the tabernacle in which our Lord is ministering fulfills this typology, doesn't it? Of there is a shadow and a substance. And we're going to come back to that in a moment, but all of this ties together to say Christ is the fulfillment of all this. Christ is the answer. Christ is who you need. There is no secondary backup option. You can't say, Jesus is uncomfortable. I'm going to stick with Levi. That'll be good enough. No, Levi is not sufficient. Levi and the priesthood and the old covenant was given for a time until Christ would come. And so as we think about this for a moment, we need to recognize the chief point, the head point that is being made is Christ and his priesthood is what is needed. So seeing that we, hopefully, you'll agree, are tracking along with the argument of the letter as it's given to us here, we want to look at a couple of glorious things that are said in these first two verses. They're very important for us to think about. And we'll be quick here. But there is a description to begin with of Christ as high priest. A description of him. And it says that he is such a high priest. Now that's an emphasis. We would recognize that if you'd say, he's a good guy. Right? That's something we say, he's a good guy. And we mean he's a good guy. But sometimes we we'll go, oh man, he's such a good guy. Why do we add that extra word? It doesn't really change the meaning, but it emphasizes in some way. Well, it does here again. We don't just have another high priest. We have such a high priest. Such a high priest. This word, toyutos, it it actually means this kind of high priest. Unlike any other, we have this kind of high priest. We have a, a priest like this. It's demonstrative. And it points us to what the author wants to say here about this high priest, which is what? To speak of his position, his glorious position. Now take note of it. He's, he's not in Jerusalem. He's in heaven, right? So when you look at the high priest that, that these Jewish Christians that are thinking about going back to the synagogue, they're alive in a time where apparently the temple is still in function. So it's before 70 AD or so. And at that time, they're thinking about Wherever they are in the world, we can go back to the system. It exists. It is functional. We can be Jews in this system. And what this author is saying is you're going back to a a priesthood that's based in a city on earth. When I'm telling you that the eschatological picture of the Scriptures is of a greater high priest who is seated not in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly place. He's seated in heaven. In fact, look at how he says this. He says that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, it's amazing wording here when you think about it, but again, this can't be said of the Old Testament priesthood. 
The Old Testament priesthood certainly uh, was in an important place, right? It was a place God appointed at that time in Jerusalem where the temple was before that, the tabernacle. Uh, This was according to the design of God, totally in obedience to God. But now obedience requires to move beyond that because that was a shadow pointing to something greater than itself. It was pointing to a priesthood that didn't reside in a city but resided in heaven and particularly is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now as you think about this for a moment, you'll remember that the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. This was an important part of his job. He alone could do this. Entered the presence of God, right, where the the Ark of the Covenant was. And he would offer this sacrifice on Yom Kippur for the people. Very important. It's been important to this argument. But notice, if you will, in verse 2, it says of Jesus that he is a minister, if you will, of the sanctuary. Now, this word in the Greek is agios. It may be a word you're familiar with. In our world, you hear about like the agiosophia, right? These are a, a famous former church. Uh, in uh, Constantinople or Istanbul today, but now it's a mosque, uh, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, but this is a word for holiness. Holiness. He is in the sanctuary or he's in the holy place. Well, that's where the priest worked, isn't it? The priest did his work in the holy place, inside the temple, and particularly in the holy of holies. And he's saying, no, Christ is in the true sanctuary. He's in the true holy place. But I don't want you to just think about his location. Think about his posture. Because it says he is seated. He is seated. Now this is a detail that we can overlook or we've heard a million times in sermons. It's seated because his work is completed. And that is important. But our author is also wanting us to think about this important point. In the Old Testament, no priest sat in the Holy of Holies. No priest could sit down. For one thing, his work was never done. Right? He knew he had to go in and, and sprinkle the blood upon the, the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would go out as soon as he had made intercession on behalf of the people. And then he wouldn't come back for a year. He wasn't allowed to abide there. In fact, it wouldn't have been safe for him to have stayed there long. He's a sinful human being. He had to offer sacrifices just to enter in obedience to the command of God to fulfill this task. But fulfill it and remove yourself. Right? That's the way it was. One of the great differences that we tried to talk about a few chapters ago was now we can safely enter the presence of God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. You could not go boldly into the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God in the Old Covenant or else you would have been struck dead. And even then, only the high priest could enter. But Christ isn't in this earthly holy place. He's in a greater holy place, the actual sanctuary of heaven. And he is seated there. His work is completed. Yes, that is intended. His work is completed. He doesn't have to think about uh, next year I've got to offer another sacrifice, right? It's been offered once and for all for sinners. But his work is completed. He sits there at the right hand of the Father making intercession, mediating on behalf of his people, offering us the help that we need. All these things this author has detailed along the way. At times it seems tedious. I know, but the reality is all these things are important and help us to understand what Christ is even currently doing. But he is seated, and that also tells us something. He is perfectly at home in the presence of his Father. He isn't a sinner like we are. He isn't a sinner like the high priest was. He doesn't have to worry, can I stay here long? 
He can forever abide at the right hand of the Father because He is holy Himself. He is perfectly righteous Himself. And so He is seated, His work completed. He is intercessing on our behalf in the heavenly holy place. But that's not all it says. We also look at what it says about this place in verse 2. The true tabernacle. Now, that's interesting wording, isn't it? The true tabernacle. Because we could say for a moment, well, what's the false tabernacle? But we'd be missing the point. The point isn't that there's a false tabernacle. There probably is somewhere in the world. But that's not the point so much. The point is of typology. We've talked about this. There are types, and they're fulfilled in an anti-type, right? That the fullness, the shadow, and the substance. And what he's saying is there is a tabernacle on earth, which led to a temple on earth, But those are just shadows of the reality and fullness of what is in heaven. The true sanctuary, the true serving place of the high priest, the true tabernacle. In fact, we're going to get here next week and look at this a little more in depth. But if you look at verse 5, it even makes it clear that Moses was instructed in this way. You are to build a copy of what I've shown you exists in the heavenly realm. Is that not what it says? As Moses, he says, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said to him, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. The tabernacle is a shadow of the substance of this ministering place where Christ ministers today as the perfect high priest. Not a better high priest. He is better, but he is perfect. Perfect. And so again, we'll look at this a little bit more in depth next week because it's going to be verses 3, 4, and 5. But recognize for a moment that what it's saying is, even again, there is typology at play in all these things. God was all along teaching us things. Why give us a tabernacle? Why give us a tabernacle? Why have a holy of holies? What does the holy of holies teach you? You as a sinner, you cannot stand in the presence of God. You cannot. There must be barriers, right? You cannot come into the presence of God or you will be destroyed. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me, right? Woe is me, enters in the presence of the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted. His response in this moment is, Woe is me, I am undone, for my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm a people, I'm of unclean lips and of a people of unclean lips. Again, the, the message here that it's teaching us over and over are important Doctrinal points. God appoints one man to enter this place in the presence of God. And even then, he must be appointed, and he must be cleansed, and he must go through sacrifices in order to do this. But the end isn't Levi. Levi has to teach us about the true high priest who can enter into the holy place and can reside there and can make sacrifices because there's no separation between him and his father And He reconciles us to the Father so that we are fully reconciled and can come boldly to the throne of grace. My friends, this is what this has all been teaching us. Look back to the Old Testament. Don't divorce the Scriptures from the Old Testament. The Scriptures are kind of pointed to, right? The New Testament is pointed to out of the Old Testament. We need to recognize it in that way. So again, the the temple, the tabernacle, is but a, a shadow of this heavenly reality. And Christ 
serves there. He's the mediator, as this text says. Look at verse 6. He has obtained a more excellent ministry. That's kind of almost an understatement, isn't it? But he has a greater ministry, superior ministry. No question about that. Inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, part of what we're going to get to along this and and tied into to Baptist biblical theology is uh, how do we understand the relationship of the new covenant to the old covenant? How do we understand that relationship? And so we're going to be looking at that in the weeks ahead. But understand, he makes it clear this is a different and better covenant. A different and better covenant. It's not the same covenant. Or how could it be better? And so we need to recognize that. We'll come back uh, to that later on. But again, he is a mediator of a better covenant, and it was established on better promises. The promises of the old covenant are great. We don't want to miss that. They are great. God blessed Israel with the covenant, and it had great promises attached to it, but they cannot compare to what we have in Christ. This is why Paul says, as glorious as that old covenant was, when viewed in light of the new covenant, it's as if that covenant had no glory at all. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? But that's how much more glorious this new covenant is. And so all of this has us to realize that even the tabernacle of the Old Testament and the the temple was not just randomly built. God didn't just say, uh, I'm going to think of some pattern randomly. That's not how God works. God is a God of order. And God fashioned the earthly tabernacle after this true substance of the heavenly tabernacle. And so we need to realize that that is where our king priest is reigning and serving and ministering. So when we come back to this next Lord Day, we'll look at it in a little bit more in depth. But until then, I want you to consider this. What this author is saying to a generation that likely lived in a time the temple was functioning and still standing, and they were thinking about leaving the church that they had claimed that they had allegiance to. They were Christians. They're claiming uh, it's getting a little uncomfortable to be a Christian. We're just going to go back to the synagogue because God blessed that, didn't he? God gave us the Sinai Covenant. God, God gave us Moses. God gave us the Ten Commandments. God gave us all that. Yes, He did. And all those things are important and have lasting importance to us as Christians as they reveal the will of God and His moral standards. All of these things are important to us. But all of them were given to us not as the end, but as something that pointed forward to something greater than themselves. In other words, as Paul says, the end of the law is Christ. The, the talos, the aim of the law was to point us to Christ, to show us our need of Christ, our need of a mediator who is sufficient, who doesn't have to go back year after year in these attempts to, to reconcile us to a holy and righteous God, which could never be done through earthly sacrifices anyway, not through animals. No, there was a better sacrifice needed and a better high priest needed, and there's a better sanctuary And there is a better priesthood. All this is pointed to. You can't go back to what was once seemed sufficient when you realize that God never deemed it sufficient. And so it's a substance that always pointed forward to something greater. And that God has offered us in a covenant of grace mediated by Christ in the heavenly tabernacle who once and for all offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. He is the spotless and perfect Lamb of God. And He is now seated as our perfect priest and king. And I think what this author is trying to hammer his audience over the head with, and he's trying to hammer us over the head with today is, 
when you realize the fullness of what God has given us in Christ, how could you accept anything less? How could you desire anything less? Now, in their day, it's the, going back to the, the synagogue and to Levi. But for us, there are many things, aren't there, that the world offers us in lieu of Christ. You can just turn on Oprah and find three or four, right? Three or four alternative ways to reconcile yourself to God, and none of them will work. There is only one mediator, only one way to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God, and that is in Christ, His person and work. And if you recognize that, how can you settle for anything less? And I think that is the message the author is trying to hit us over the head with. So let's keep that in mind as we get ready to move forward beyond the chief thing, the head thing he's been saying, and see how he ties it all together in this chapter. And I think, uh, I pray it'll be a great journey.